morning, everyone. So our reading today is Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. And it's addressed the Tower of Babel. And it goes, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Sinel and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be despaired over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are the one people, and they have all one language, and is this is one the begin only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they can propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come let us down and there confess their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech, so the Lord's despair from them there over the face of all the earth. And they left after building the city. Therefore his name was called Babel, because here the Lord confessed, confused the language of the earth and from the Lord despised them over the face of all the earth. Hello, check. Can everybody hear me okay? <laughs> Sounds like it. I mean, at least I can hear my echo, so that's always a good sign. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, how about, good morning, everybody. There we go. That's good to hear your voices this morning. And as you just heard, we are uh, still in Genesis. Like I talked last week, we're actually going to spend two weeks. Last week we talked through Genesis 3. This week we're talking through Genesis 11. Um, But before we get to Genesis 11, um, just real quick, and I I don't know if you guys did did this, but on Friday... Uh, Rachel and I, we made ourselves comfortable, we got on our couch, and we watched the opening ceremonies for the Olympics. And I don't know if anybody else watched the opening ceremonies, or if anybody else loves the Olympics like we do, but whenever it comes around, we really enjoy watching it. Um, we, in, in fact, we even spent some money, got a streaming service thing for just a month, just so that we could have access to it without having to worry about trying to find the right thing that's streaming it or whatever. So we can enjoy all the different events, and we do enjoy lots of different events. We're actually both really excited that there's going to be a climbing uh, portion this year. Uh, Rachel really loves like the gymnastics. Uh, we both like the cycling that's going on. Um, and while we have different sports that we both prefer watching, there's one thing about the Olympics that both of us always want to watch, and that's the opening ceremonies. And this year, the opening ceremonies, like, while just the event itself is enough of a draw to go want to watch it, there is two things that, at least for me, made me really want to watch it even more. And that's first, the fact that these are, it says Tokyo 2020 everywhere, but we're not in 2020, right? We're in 2021. So it, we wanted to see, okay, what is the opening ceremony going to be like in light of the fact that everything got pushed back a year? And the other thing that made us really want to watch it is the fact that it's being hosted in Japan, which if you don't know, 
Japan is very close to both of our hearts, but especially Rachel's. I mean, she's taking, she's doing a degree, and part of that is an emphasis on Japanese. So we really wanted to get to see this opening ceremony that's going to be done in a very Japanese way, to see how they would interpret um, just what typically happens during the opening ceremonies. And while there's a lot of really cool moments that happen, there was one moment that stood out to us, um, and I don't know if you guys saw this or you might have seen clips of this, but during the ceremony, there was a point where 1,800 little drones were up in the air, and they all light up, and they're all, at first, they're all in the formation of, like, the logo for this year's Olympics. And then they started, like, moving and rotating, and then they formed this perfect globe that just slowly rotated in the sky above the stadium. It was really cool. If you haven't seen it, don't do it right now because you're watching. Wait till after the service. And that goes for you guys watching online too. Wait till afterwards. But just Google it. It was really cool to see this globe that's literally floating above the Olympic Stadium there in Tokyo. It's not something that was added in with computers or anything like that. It's a physical thing that's floating there. And while it was floating up there, there was this famous John Lennon song that was performed, um, Imagine, which I'm sure most of you know. And on the surface, you know, this is a pretty sweet moment because it's uh, different people. They had different people from different parts of the world singing different parts of the song. It's this picture of humanity coming together, which is, you know, something that the Olympics always tries to promote, something that it tries to kind of say that it's a, it's a moment where the world comes together to compete and just do these games. And, you know, that, that idea makes sense why they might choose a song like Imagine. But I'm sorry for all of you who like that song, but I really think that's, that's just, it's kind of a horrible song when you actually pay attention to it. Because while it does have this like good message on the surface, right? It's talking about the world coming together, living at peace. It says, like, imagine that there's no greed. Like, that's all great and all. But when you listen to it, the other things it says for the world to come together is you have to imagine that there's no heaven. And you have to imagine that there's no religion or countries or culture or any of these things that make us different from one another. It's basically saying that humans are only going to be able to live united if we all looked, act, thought, and talked exactly the same way. And really, when you think about that, that's a really boring thing to imagine. To imagine a world where everybody does everything exactly the same, looks exactly the same, talks exactly the same. Because what makes humanity so great is its diversity. It's when you have a diverse group of people who come to a common issue and you see all the different like answers that they bring that we get to see really cool things come out of that like let's take take food for instance right when you have different cultures trying to answer the question of what are we going to eat that's how we get all our different types of restaurants and our different types of food and like if you go to blue water today to get some food you could get um let's see you could get a hamburger you could get a burrito you could get pasta you could even get chicken liver parfait, if that's something you really want. I don't really want that, but if that's something you would want, you could get that there. Yet, if we imagined a world without countries or differences, we wouldn't have that. We'd probably have a place where 
every restaurant, no matter where you went, served exactly the same food. And I think that's boring. But then again, as British people, you might think that sounds lovely to just have everybody serving exactly the same. But I just, the point is, is that when we look at the, how the world imagines things would look like if we all lived in harmony, it's not really that great. But if we take a step back and we look at the picture that the Bible brings to us, the picture that the Bible presents of a world living in unity, we see that there's people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation coming together to live in harmony. And they're coming together not because they've put aside all their cultural differences. They're not coming together because they all now speak the same language. It says every tongue. It's, they're coming together because they're worshiping the one that created all of them. In fact, if you look at it, Christianity is probably the most diverse religion in the world. What I mean by that is that we have people from all over the world, and if you look at it, if you traveled from here to South America and you went to a church there, you would still hear about Jesus, you would still hear from the Bible, but it would look totally different the way they did things. And then if you jumped over to somewhere in like East Asia, again, you would still hear from the Bible, you would still hear things about Jesus, but again, it would look completely different because the Christianity is just a unique religion in that it can, it can fit in no matter what the cultural context is. And that's not by accident because that's what God intended all along. In fact, if we look through the Bible, we see that. Like in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, most people think, oh, well, it's all about Israel. And then when Israel gets exiled, well, it's all about bringing Israel out of exile. But when you read through it, that's not the only thing we see. When we look at uh, anywhere in the Old Testament where it's talking about like what's going to be like at the end of the days, like what's going to the end of the world look like, it always shows all of the nations coming together. We can see that in Isaiah 2.2. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Isaiah 49.6 says, The Lord says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 3.17 says, at, the same, at that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Daniel 7.14, when it's giving us this picture of the Son of Man, this, it's really showing a picture of Jesus, but like giving us a prophetic vision of him. It says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not, never be destroyed. And Zechariah 9.10 says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right? The Old Testament is full of, the pic full of these pictures of all of the nations coming together. In fact, if we look at the New Testament, we see the same thing with Jesus. Right? There's, 
And at the end of Matthew, there's this really famous verse that me and Rachel have heard way too many times because we're missionaries. But it's called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And then later on in Acts, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his 12 disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Christianity is a religion that should work in any place, no matter the cultural context, because we are all people made in the image of God. And we're all people that God wants to have a relationship with. It doesn't matter where you're from, or what you do, or what language you speak, or what food you eat. God wants to get to know you, and God wants you to get to know, get to know him. In fact, the churches that look most like the kingdom of God are the churches where you see people who if somebody outside that church looked in, they'd be like, how do all these people get along? Because all these people look different. All these people talk differently. All these people have different opinions. All these people like different things. And yet they're all acting like a family. Because that's what heaven is going to be like. That is the world we should imagine. And that brings us to our passage today. Because what we just read, what Kev read for us just a few minutes ago, is a story of humans trying to live out the imagination of John Lennon. And we also see the response of God to that. Now before we jump into the passage today, I want to kind of bridge the gap. Because last week we talked through Genesis 3. And if you weren't here, just a really quick review. Genesis 3 is all about the fall of humanity. It's about Adam and Eve. It's about the snake that shows up in the garden and talks to the woman and convinces the woman that it would be great for her and for her husband to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we read that the real temptation there is that the real temptation is for humans to take the fruit and to define good and evil according to their own, just themselves, according to what they want to define good and evil as. And we also talked about what does sin do? So when we give in to sin, when we give in to that temptation, what happens? And we read about how sin breaks apart relationships, right? Because honestly, before we get to this passage, and even with the song Imagine, God wants all of humanity to come together. Like, the Bible wants everybody to come together. We just read about how all the nations are going to come together at the end of days. That's the picture. That is the goal. But as we can see in Genesis 3, sin breaks up that goal. Sin causes us to have divisions among each other because as we define good and evil by our own standards, we can't trust other people. We can't be vulnerable with other people. And it breaks our relationship, not just with other people, but it breaks our relationship with God. And so at the end of chapter 3, we saw that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Chapter 4, we see that they have a few kids. They have Cain and Abel. And again, we see that Cain defines good and evil according to himself, and he kills his brother. We then read about how Humanity just keeps getting worse and worse and worse until we get to Noah and the flood. And God kind of wipes out humanity except for Noah. It's like he almost like presses the reset button. And Noah's given another chance for humanity. But as we read in chapter 9, Noah fails just as quickly as Adam and Eve did. 
Because if you look at chapter 9, I mean, does this sound familiar? He plants a garden, so he's in a garden. He eats some of the fruit of that garden, which causes him to get drunk. And then he ends up naked. Does that sound familiar to anything that we read about Genesis 3 just last week? So we have humanity is still trying and it's still failing. And we get to chapter 10 of Genesis, which actually is a really cool chapter. I know a lot of people like to skip that chapter because it's just a lot of names. And reading a lot of names in the Bible is kind of hard and can be boring. But whenever there's a lot of names in the Bible, usually there's very important things in there. And in fact, Genesis 10 is kind of uh, often called the table of nations because what we see is we see where all these different nations that we're going to read about in the Bible come from. Whether it's Egypt or Canaan or any of these people groups, we see them in Genesis 10. And we actually do need to pay attention a little bit to Genesis 10 because it's going to help give us the foundation for the story we just read in chapter 11. Specifically, if you have your Bibles, flip to Genesis 10 and look at verses 8 through 12 with me. Because Genesis 8 through 12, there's this, it's going through, it's listing all these descendants, and then it, it gives a little pause to giving descendants, and it tells us this little story. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Er, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. Now real quick, the reason I point that out is because the first thing listed there is Babel, and we just read about the construction of Babel, and we're going to get to that. So this gives us a bit uh, background of who is leading this people group that is going to build this great tower, um, this guy named Nimrod. Now if, I don't know if this was a thing in the UK, but I know at least in the States growing up, if somebody called you a Nimrod, it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> it was kind of like you're, you're being dumb or silly or whatever, but... Um, it's kind of ironic because if we look at here, Nimrod is actually this mighty warrior. He's the first person to be called a mighty man. He is this amazing hunter. Apparently there's even a phrase that existed way back when that if you wanted to compliment somebody, you said they were like Nimrod, who is a mighty hunter before the Lord. But one other thing I want to point out about uh, this guy and what he does is that he seems to set up a lot of different places. And from him, there's going to be two specific people groups that are going to be founded that are going to be very vital later on in the story of the Old Testament. And that is Assyria and Babylon, the two big nations that will come later and bring the people of Israel into exile. Now, real quick, you may be thinking, well, Shelby, I'm looking at my Bible. I see, I'm reading through those verses, and I see Assyria listed here, but I don't see Babylon. Well, that gives me an excuse to talk to you about Hebrew once again. And you see, the word there for Babel is the same Hebrew word for Babylon. In fact, everywhere else in the Bible except for Genesis 10 and 11, it will be translated as Babylon. But here it's translated as Babel, which brings up the question, well, why do they do that? And I'm going to ask you to hold on to that question because we're going to actually talk about that a little bit later. What I want you to know, notice, though, is that there's this guy. 
He's called a mighty man who has set up Babel. And while that sounds great that he's been called a mighty man, there's only one other place so far in Genesis that we've been told that people are called mighty. And that's in Genesis 6 when we read about the Nephilim, who are the offspring between rebellious angels and humans. So him being called a mighty man seems to be hinted at, at least from the story so far, that he might not actually be the greatest guy in the world. He might be somebody who, he's a mighty man, but he is a conqueror who's been going around and establishing kingdoms for himself. And so with all that said, with all that context put in place, let's look at chapter 11. Let's look at the first four verses. So flip, if you were in chapter 10, flip back to 11. Let's read verses 1 through 4 again together. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So let's walk through those verses real quick. Now, like I said, like we just read in chapter 10, we've, we're getting kind of a zoom-in picture of what we just read in chapter 10, right? Chapter 10 gives us a bunch of different places that are built, um, but we're zooming in and focusing specifically on that first place listed, Babel. And remember, as we just read, Nimrod was the guy who established it. And if you read through chapter 10, chapter 10 again, it starts with uh, Noah and his sons, and then all of his the son's kids and their kids and goes on of a couple generations. So if you were to follow through chapter 10, you would realize that Nimrod is Noah's great-grandson. And as Noah's great-grandson, it kind of makes sense, if that's the guy who's establishing the city, that everybody there would probably still be speaking the same language. Because unless you are maybe somebody who has migrated from one country to another, you probably still speak the same language as your great-grandparents. I know it's not... I can't say that as a blanket statement because I know there are some people that, you know, have moved around and we are in a much more global context now. But a lot of people probably speak the language that their great-grandparents do, which makes sense why it says that everybody spoke the same language, everybody had the same words. The one thing, though, that I want to point out that's implied by these first few verses is that it seems like a good chunk of humanity is all together building this city together. Uh, We read in 10, like I said, 10 talks about all these different nations and all these different people groups, and most of them, uh, uh, not most, but a good chunk of them do spread out. We do read from like some of the different sons that they all spread out and go to different places, but here we see that there's probably a good chunk of them that didn't want to spread out. They wanted to stay together. They wanted to build this city, and I mean, if you look at what we just read in verse 4, the reason they're building the city, the reason why they're building this tower is so that they won't be dispersed across the face of the earth. And you might wonder, well, what, why is that a big deal? Why does it matter if they don't want to be dispersed? Well, once again, it shows that humanity is wanting to do things their own way and not God's way. Because God's plan was for humanity to spread out and to go over all of the earth. We see that first in Genesis 1, verses 28. Genesis 1, of course, is 
the creation story, uh, God creates humans, and in verse 28 he says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Right? Don't just be fruitful, multiply, stay in one place. It's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And later on, after the flood, so most of humanity is wiped out except for Noah and his family, and God's talking to Noah, and he says the same thing to Noah. In chapter 9, verse 7, it says, And you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. That idea of increasing greatly is the same idea of filling the earth. Don't just stay in one place. God's plan is for humanity to rule over all of the earth, to rule over all the land. So go ahead Multiply and spread out. And yet what do we see in chapter 11? We see a group of people who have decided that they think God's plan is no good. And they want to do their own plan instead. Now, the other part that they want to do is they want to try to keep everybody together. Because that keeps everybody the same, right? As soon as you start spreading out, as soon as you start going to different areas, you're naturally going to start developing differences, different ways of doing things, different ways of saying things. I mean, just look at how English has changed from the time that America was a colony versus now. Like, we've come over as Americans, and we're always hearing different words that are used that we're, than we're used to. In fact, one of the fun things about watching the Olympics this year is that we're watching it with British commentators, and they're using phrases that, like, we had never heard before, and we kind of laugh at. And, like, like, I think he was, like, they're talking about swimming. They're like, oh, throw a blanket over those guys. Let's pay attention to this. I was like, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? Right? When you have people that separate and go different, differences are made, but they don't want differences to be made. They want to stay together. They want to be the same. And to help show that their way is the best, that keeping everybody together is the best, they want to make a name for themselves, right? To make a name for yourself is to promote yourself. You want to make sure everybody recognizes your group what you stand for, which is something we still do today, right? People are always looking at how they can leave their mark or how they can make the group that they're a part of sound great. I mean, we do live in an individualistic society, but even here in England we see that because I know some of you don't want to remember this, but a few weeks ago there was a soccer tournament, or sorry, a football tournament that happened called the Euro Cup. And I will tell you, I mean, I haven't lived here long, but I have never seen more English flags in my life than when the Euro Cup was going on, right? There was a sense of unity almost of like England coming together to bring it home. Um, and I won't comment on how it went, but <laughs> the idea of is that all of the people came together. There's a sense that they wanted to make a name, in this case, a name for England, so they decide the best way to do that is to build this tower. And they say that they're going to try to make this tower so tall that the tops are in the heavens. Now real quick, another little quick Hebrew lesson for you guys. The word for heavens there is the same word for sky. It's just saying it's going to be really tall. But it's important to understand that heaven, sky means the same thing. Because to them, if you could reach up to the sky, that is where... God and all the other spiritual beings dwelt. And you don't have to take my word for it. We can just look at Genesis 1 and creation. 
Because in Genesis 1, humans, as you remember last week, they're given a position to rule over the earth. We talked about how they were given authority to rule over the animals, but it also, they're supposed to rule over the land itself. Um, if we, you, like I said even earlier, that you're going to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's like God was appointing humanity as his kind of appointed, like, rulers of this region of creation. And God does the same thing, though, with the sky. Because if we read in chapter 4, or not chapter 4, if we read in day 4 in Genesis 1, we read about the creation of the lights that fill up the sky. And it makes sense. We, read, we understand that as the sun, the moon, and the stars. But to an ancient Hebrew, an ancient Middle Eastern person reading that, the lights in the sky aren't just objects up there that are floating around. Those are actual beings. And they are given authority. As we read in Genesis 1, 17 to 18, it says, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So you saw that there that they were given authority to rule. That's the same idea for humans. So humans are given authority to rule down here. These beings that are up there are given authority to rule over here. But what are these humans trying to do in chapter 11? Well, they're trying to build a tower so that they no longer are just the rulers of this area, but the rulers of that area as well. They want to elevate humanity's position above God and above the other spiritual beings up there. So that's what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to keep everybody together, look, make everybody look the same. And we then see God's response to this in verses 5 through 8 in chapter 11. So if you have chapter 11 open, flip back to that and read 5 through 8 with me. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord had said, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord disputed, dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Now, there's a few things going on here. First, there's this interesting phrase that God says. He says, he comes down and he says that there will be nothing impossible for them. And as I was working on this sermon, uh, just to give you guys a glimpse behind the scenes, I usually go through it with Rachel um, before I teach. And uh, we actually have a friend visiting right now, Maddie, who's visiting us from Southern Down in Wales. And so they got to be my, my first audience and give me some feedback. And as we were talking about this specific thing, I thought Maddie brought up a great point that I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to steal from you real quick. And she's like, because she works with younger kids, and she's like, you know, when I read this, I think about how if you have a bunch of younger kids, especially troublemakers, and they all start gathering into a bigger and bigger group, eventually you're like, oh no, if I don't stop this group from forming, there's nothing that will be impossible for them, right? And I think that's actually part of what's going on, because there is this group that is rebelling against God, that is becoming bigger and bigger. And they, if left unchecked, they might just completely rebel against God and just do everything 
make everything the same. In fact, as they expand from uh, what we see, remember Genesis 10 says there's other people that live out there. As they expand, they might start swallowing up those other people groups and forcing them to become exactly like them. Getting rid of all those differences so that they could build a great name for themselves. So God comes down and he causes the very thing that they were afraid of, of being dispersed, right? It says he comes down and he starts giving them all different languages because they can't understand each other. They all start separating, they spread out, and the construction on the tower is stopped. Which brings us to our final verse. Therefore it is, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And that brings us back to the question earlier of why are they using the word Babel instead of Babylon? Well, the few things. First, the word in Hebrew for confusion also sounds exactly like Babel. So a little bit of it is a word play. There, I think the English translators are picking up on that, and so that's why they use the word Babel instead of Babylon to point out that, that word play. Because in English, Babel and confused kind of is a, has a similar, not definition, but can be used together. I also think that this is a way of them showing that Babylon isn't as great as they say they are because they would say their origins was a confusing, was a mess of confusion. But I think also what's important though of understanding that Babel and Babylon are the same is that this becomes a symbol and a theme throughout the Bible. Babylon is more than a nation. It's more than this great city that later on will exile the Jews. It becomes a picture of what happens when humans decide to reject God and define good and evil for themselves. Remember, last week we talked about when humans do that, right? When humans decide they're going to define good and evil according to their own standards, they become no better than animals. And in fact, when we read about, when we read Daniel, um, we actually read about this story when we were going through Daniel a few months ago. And right, Daniel's in Babylon. And what happens to the head of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the king over Babylon? Well, when he's caught up in his pride, when he says that he got to define all the good things according to his standard, God literally gives him the mind of an animal. Right? We see that picture just on pretty explicit display for us. So we see that these humans are now scattered. They're given new languages. But remember, at the beginning, I said God's goal was to bring all the nations together from different cultures and different languages. And his goal isn't to bring everybody together so that they can get rid of all those cultures and all those different languages, but to come together with those differences. And so as a picture of humanity of coming together despite our differences and worshiping God. And just as he scatters everybody through language, he actually starts off the creation of his kingdom with language as well. Because in Acts 2, we get the story of Pentecost. Right? This is the story where the Holy Spirit comes down and fills up the first Christians, and they all start speaking in tongues. And they all start speaking in different languages. And this is important because at that time, there were Jews from all over the world. There was Jews coming in from different places that they all spoke 
a common language, probably Greek. They all could have probably have understood Greek. Like if Peter had gotten up or if the whole early Christians were there and they were probably like standing by the temple proclaiming the gospel in Greek, all the people coming by probably could have understood them. But that's not what God does. In verse 6, we read that, and at the sound that the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They didn't hear it in the common language. They heard it in their own language, right? God wasn't expecting them to get rid of their differences. God was using those differences to start off his kingdom. God's version of humans coming together is not for us to give up all the things that make us different. It's not to give up our different cultural aspects or our different unique tastes or the things that we like to do. God is asking us to embrace those differences. God is asking us to imagine something greater. So what? Well, we have only spent a little time in Genesis. I hope that you have kind of seen this big theme that we as a people are a part of God's kingdom and we are called to be the family of God. We're called to come together as a family. Sin tries to divide us. Sin tries to break up those relationships. But God wants us to live together in harmony and not because we, can, we don't live in harmony just because we're all the same. We live in harmony because we all follow God. And like most families, right? Most families are going to be full of people who have different opinions. Uh, most families are going to have full of people that see something different ways. Uh, they're going to have different things that they like and dislike. And yet, despite all that, a family can come together. And despite all of our differences, we can come together as well. In fact, we should be a group that embraces those differences and does not seek to force other people to look exactly like us. So just the two questions I want to leave with you today. Do you try to make everyone else look like you? And what do you imagine a world in harmony would be like? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you are a God that, I mean, in yourself, you are the Trinity. You are three in one. You are a community that has come together uh, in a way that we can look at and try to be like. God, I pray that we would be a people that as we hopefully grow the kingdom here as hopefully more and more people come into the church, whether it's here in Ainsford or at Stone, that we wouldn't be churches that would try to conform people to the way that we want them to look or conform people to the way that we want them to think, but actually embrace those differences and be a church that just celebrates the fact that humanity is diverse, that, you, that everybody is created in your image. God, I pray that we would be a family, a family that does love each other, a family that despite our differences gets along. Thank you so much for being our heavenly father, for calling us sons and daughters. In your name, amen.